Hey everyone and welcome back to the Firefighters Podcast where we seek to develop, inspire and motivate the world of the emergency services operator through a series of wide-ranging conversations. Now before we go any further, just hit that rate, follow or subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening to. It's a key performance indicator for us and helps us reach even more people. Now here's what we've got for you today. My guest on the podcast today is Kirk McKenzie. Kirk is an award-winning smart first responder technologist providing strategic community risk reduction with next generation partner and solution development. However, he is also a 34-year fire service veteran, 9-11 Go concept developer, supporting international teams of subject matter experts advising, speaking, and an author to the government. We're going to be talking about lots of subjects today. For the past 15 years, Kirk McKenzie has been working around 3D technologies for smart public safety and firefighting and first response. It really does raise the question, how do we have 8 billion souls on the planet and 4.5 billion of them are connected, yet 150,000 perish every single day? The tool of choice for firefighters is two-way communication, radio, phone number, landline, yet in every day we have apps for everything. Ride sharing, Deliveroo, e-scooters, dry cleaning, food delivery, central heating, the list just goes on. How do we move our industry forward into the next generation of technology? In our conversation today, Kirk gives us a buffet of innovation and creativity of things he has come across, things he has supported on, developed on, and helped bring to market. But today isn't a sales pitch. Today is around How do we change the way we think? How do we drag those technologically nervous individuals in our sectors into this new technological age? Now, 30 years ago, when all firefighters began to have handheld radios instead of just the one incident commander company officer, it was incredible. It was empowering. It was just absolutely a revolution in how we could deploy resources, get organized and controlled and instigate our tactical plan on the incident ground. We're only too aware that we have a tremendous shortage of aspiring firefighters around the world. Organizations, services, companies, volunteer companies are unfortunately closing their doors in certain places of the world. And one thing that I always feel perpetually frustrated about when I see these incredible young people with innovative minds, with a drive, with a passion coming into our services is that they are sometimes and often met with the stark reality that we are still operating with some very primitive technology in comparison to what they will be interacting with on their day-to-day basis. We need to update our systems. We need to update our technology, our equipment, and we need to fully embrace this technological revolution. One of the things we're going to be talking about in our conversation is the see-through technology, which is one thing Kirk has had a lot of involvement in, So let's hear a little bit about how that technology was created, what the thought process was behind it, and how it's helping firefighters in different parts of the world right now in its final stages of development. So before we get into with Kirk, let me introduce Robert Downey Jr. Technology. We're at the dawn of a new age. The age of AI. Artificial intelligence. Tons of folks are working on it, right? So it raises the question, Do we even want to be superhuman or is imperfection what makes life interesting in the first place? At what point do we start trusting AI in matters of life and death? So it was a smoldering fire that like just filled the whole house with smoke and you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. You literally had to feel your way up the stairs. Totally blind search. Yeah. 
every two hours and 45 minutes, a U.S. citizen dies by fire in their own home. We've lost more than 3,000 a year consistently for 30 years. The Worcester fire. Three guys go in, they get lost. Two more go in. I mean, before you know it, they finally had to like, okay, we're not sending any more guys in there because they're all freaking lost. On his radio, a commanding officer heard two firefighters desperately crying out for help. Mayday, mayday, we're running out of air. Come to the door so we can see where you are. And we did that. And we went beyond the door and we yelled and we had lights. And they were they were inside somewhere that they couldn't see us. All those guys who died in that. When we go into a structure that's dark and smoky, the biggest challenge is the visibility. Ability to navigate is, is a challenge, and often firefighters have become disoriented, and then they run out of air. With the challenge of smoke and having no vision, I knew that there was a possibility of, of changing that. That's when I finally met this through team. I guess the best way to describe myself is I'm infinitely curious. I like to solve problems. I was in disbelief that firefighting in a smoked out building involves training their personnel to revert back to feeling around a room. The problem that see-through is trying to solve is really flipping the lights on for people operating in zero visibility conditions. The concept of see-through was the helmet that had enhanced audio enhanced. I see ya. I'm on my way. We have a mask and we have a thermal imaging device that sits on the side of that mask and we process that in a small computer. Sam and Omer created a mask with special glasses clipped inside. Thermal imaging cameras stream video from the firefighter's helmet into an AI processor. Using edge detection algorithm, the mask detects subtle changes in brightness to predict shapes invisible to the human eye, like a wall hidden by smoke or a kid hiding under a bed. This is insane. Don't believe this, man. I can see the pattern on the walls. I can even see the badge on your helmet. Okay, stay close. 2021 is on scene, smoke showing from the second and the first floor. Had a victim trapped on the second floor. See ya, three yards at two o'clock. I got him. Command copies, one victim coming out of the second window, you need EMS. Medic 72, you're gonna have to take patient care. As soon as I got in, I can see the outline yeah, of the room. Uh, on the fire. As I stepped in, just kind of took a look around. I can see where the victim was and the outline of the door. I mean, hands free. Uh, we had fire attack, so I assume that it is kind of like, I mean, like Iron Man, you know, being able to see through the smoke and having everything so clear cut. Um, it's pretty cool. Working on is really a game changing tool that completely has the potential to transform how the work here is done. There's a good chance AI will continue to enhance us in ways unknown. The question then becomes, if it does, what do we do with our newfound superpowers? What does the future of Firefighting look like? <laughs> Let's start with that massive, uh, massive ball. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't be the first to have asked, Pete. Uh, 
it's certainly it's a, it's an inspiring uh, imaginary place to to go. And sometimes people ask me, well, what, what do you do, Kirk? And I say, well, I'm a a, a public safety uh, advocate of technology, uh, strategic partner advisor, stakeholder engager, and really I'm an imaginarian. What are we imagining? So, Pete, I I think the the future firefighter, first responder emergency medical service provider uh, is going to be equipped with all sorts of wearables uh, that are technologically enabling to save lives in ways we never never might have imagined with hmm. two-way voice. So, uh, This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Gore-Tex Professional Fabrics. Now, we all know the working environment of a firefighter is filled with challenges. We face serious risks on the job, such as heat exhaustion, burns, physical and mental stress, and we frequently come into contact with high levels of toxic chemicals. Now, I have been wearing Gore-Tex for nearly two decades on the front line, working in hostile environments, tackling challenging incidents from firefighting to water incidents and in urban search and rescue environments. Gore-Tex have a well-earned reputation for protecting professionals in the fire and emergency services through their family of highly innovative waterproof breathable moisture barriers that exceeds global performance standards and are trusted worldwide gore-tex going further together yeah firstly is that aspect of describing yourself as and i read it and um <clears throat> one of the articles about yourself as a first responder technologist and that's almost an oxymoron in some things because First responders and their relationship with the technology is a very wide spectrum as we look across the world. And I can certainly say here in the UK, we move at somewhat of a glacial pace when it comes to our integration with technologies. And would you say America at the tip of the sword with it? I mean, you guys and girls are bigger and it tends to be more funded. And I also think, I also actually, in all honesty, think that you guys have a greater level of respect and admiration for your first responders. But I don't know if I'm just looking at that romantically from across the pond. Well, and, and I'd say with uh, other other colleagues in, in, uh, in the EU and, uh, well, and, and down under and uh, around the world, it, there's a bit of a jealous, it uh, seems to be an international jealousy thing. I, well, I'm jealous of it because you're doing something with autonomous mm. systems or uh, like AI um uh, wildfire nozzle uh mm. you know perspectives where what if you could just drive across a, a grass fire and the the nozzle puts it out we don't mm. there's no need for us to get on the ground mm. all the time at least you know like save mm. our energy so uh I, I uh i'd love to say that we're the tip of the spear the you know the head of it but it's uh mm. it's a multi-factor equation pete yeah, that's uh, that's the aspect of it, isn't it? Is comparison is the thief of joy. When we look about the evolution of communication and technology, because one of the interesting things we were discussing before we started here was the evolution of communication and interpreting the world around us. And one of your big, um, one of your bigger innovations and stuff that that you bring to market is around that evolution from the original two way communication, which in itself was revolutionary once upon a time. Well, indeed, there, there's several things I'm uh, trains of thoughts I've already started here. Uh, one was if, if if wishers were horses, then we could all ride, and uh, and the evolution from two way voice. I, I certainly remember when only the the company officer, the captain mm. or lieutenant, had a radio, 
And when everyone got a radio, then it was, oh, well, that'll make a huge difference with uh, the loss of firefighters in the line of their work. And then we found out, well, it's complicating. It's complicated. It, it's great because they do have a radio, uh, but there's so much more that still needs to be done in what has traditionally been mm. a laborious thing. Regardless of technology, first responders are going to mm. – they're going to sweat on the job. It, it's going to be hard work. But and I think so- I think of this when I think of agriculture as well, though. Like there will have been someone similar to yourself stood at the edge of a field watching farmers – working hard, laboring in a field and going, I'm sure there's a much easier way you can guys and girls could be doing that. Do you know what I mean? And when I see the, the evolution and the sort of engineering leaps forward that agriculture has taken, I feel like we've, we're still sort of dragging our knuckles in a lot of our tactical approaches with firefighting. And I say that with respect, it's impressive. But there was also a romanticism about doing it the old way and getting yourself dirty and, you know, that kind of builder approach to just getting the tools out. Yeah, it's a, it's a an interesting uh, perspective, certainly. And I honor, appreciate, and admire our tradition and the romance of first responders that, that we – those – in the business before us and, and now and in the future, uh, come forward in a, a healthy humanitarian effort, which I appreciate. And uh, as you say, yeah, to the farm, the farmers or anyone who's laboring in the field, they yeah, now there's tractors that have AI-enabled laser weeding tools the, the autonomous tractor or autonomous equipment drives over the fields zaps the weeds no need, no need for herbicide no but need the joke to, is if yeah. um if henry ford had have asked the farmers what they want they'd have said bigger faster stronger horses you know they, they would never have said <laughs> you know the wheel and the engine and and everything else. An electric yeah, it's a totally different way of thinking. Yeah. So, so take me back to recognizing that we had been making progress, but there was still a long way to go in terms of the way that we tactically operate in the job. I was uh, introduced to three-dimensional technologies about 15 years ago and uh, okay. something called a laser scanner or LIDAR, light detection and ranging. And now smartphones uh, do, do this natively. And... One moment. The tool was measuring 5,000 measurements a second at the time. And uh, a few years later, I was uh, using the device to, to, to scan a, a cadaver in a fire death class. Yeah, very gritty work. And thank you to the forensic anthropologists out here, out there that are still involved in it. And, and the, some colleagues assisted in 3D printing this, uh, this uh, scene to show that we could preserve perishable evidence in fire investigation. Uh, and, and then I shifted. So about seven years ago to, well, how, what, how, how could we use 3d technologies to save lives? And I was invited to the game developers conference in San Francisco and 30,000 um, gamers were there. And that, that's not, you know, yeah. back in the day we had pinball, and we had a game called Pong, Atari Pong. But other than that, I was I did not I didn't uh, no no gaming for me. But I looked who was going, 
and some big enterprise teams were attending. And I thought, well, those teams know where callers are in the time of need, mm. just in 2D, right? At the time, uh, I was working in a rural community, and we might spend 20 minutes trying to find a, a patient who was critically low blood sugar and hadn't been seen in a few days and was in a remote location and, and just trying to find the caller uh, was hard. And yeah, the big enterprise teams and uh, communications teams, they know in part where folks were. And again, this is saying now oh, almost a decade ago on this that I shifted gears and started having conversations mm-hmm. about what's next. And I, and I met with some of them and they, they shared with me that, yeah, they, when, when wildland fires happen and we have multiple fatalities, dozens and dozens of souls are lost, they have some data and there's this, uh, delicate dance and, well, how, how do we figure out how to share that while respecting their privacy? Is it appropriate to share it? Do the, should they have an opt in mm-hmm. uh, opportunity to share their location? What, <laughs> what if, uh, People wanted to 3D scan their homes, uh, either scan or photogrammetry or other tools that can map our home in 3D. They'll do that to see if they want if the new couch will fit from the big box store. This is the irony. Like you say, when you look at, I think we're at the place of technology now where things are colliding. Do you know what I mean? When you see satellite navigation colliding with vehicles and you see, um, you know, music systems colliding with, uh, you know, I can't think of an example, but like you say, people that are measuring up their kitchen or even, um, I know there's a few PPE companies where they do full body scans, don't they? And it will just automatically size you. And I just think, wow, that we so should be embracing this because it's like, it's not moving in a numerical fashion. It's not binary the way that technology is advancing now. It's out, it's taking leaps. You know, these things, these sectors are colliding and then just it gives birth to a whole new way of thinking. And, and indeed, it's not a linear thing. Uh, and whether you watch uh, uh, proper football or American football, that now we have we have spatial computing and sports where it's being real time broadcast mm. in three dimensions uh, it will end in, in 4D, meaning, uh, spatial temporal. It, it, it has a space and it has a time you can rewind in 3D in, in sports and be there in VR, be on the 50 yard line. It's crazy. Or mid, mid, uh, pitch line for golf, mm. cricket, football, uh, rugby, any sport we can, that's possible. So how do we turn our domain? Our, uh, the public safety first response domain into a live spatial computing uh, ecosystem rather than mm. simply two-way voice. Uh, because even, and now we see teams go into mission critical push to talk, which is great. Okay, we can connect broadband to uh, traditional, uh, say, 800 megahertz or other radio frequencies or 4.9 spectrum. Okay, great. So maybe we have more mm. robust Voice. Maybe we could go internet protocol for voice and mission critical push to talk. But that's still voice. You and I happen to be doing a podcast, mm. but we can see each other. For, I'll have to pull us out of this rabbit hole for a second. For people that don't understand what we mean by push to talk mission critical, could you just zoom out ever so slightly 
because you spoke there about tapping into different communication networks to adopt for first responder use. That is something that will be very foreign for people. Because you, can you just de-chunk that a little bit? Because I know you, you guys and girls are a little bit further ahead than us. Uh, well, the bottom line is we all want to move forward as uh, reasonably quickly as possible because, say, yeah. in, the, in the U.S. alone, there's 700,000 calls a day to our oh. emergency response uh, centers, our public safety answering points. Uh, and about 99% of those work out all right, meaning that people survive. Uh, 1%, they don't. So that's about 7,000 U.S. souls a day who are lost. And now we're not going to save everyone, but could we save one? Uh, and around the world, I think the rate is uh, something upwards of 100, 100 souls a minute are lost. And a little more than half of the humans on the planet are connected. Uh, of the 8 billion souls, there's about 4.5 billion are connected, but on 50 billion devices. So, so as we move from basic land mobile radio, right? We have towers and repeaters, and we have heavy uh, radios on our equipment, and we key up the microphone, and okay, great, I, I believe I'm transmitting. And then hopefully we get a, a copy of read back from the other party. Yeah, engine one, copy your stretch in the line and making an attack. And then break engine two, water supply, backup line. What, what, um, and, it's, and it's over the hmm. old school radio, if you will. Now we have the ability uh, with mission critical push to talk or even non-mission critical. Like how do we... One agency I, I work with is working on, we want to go push to talk, if only for the fire inspectors or, you know, public safety or the public uh, education groups who don't, who aren't out there putting the wet stuff on the red stuff. And so uh, the concept is that, uh, that we have a high-powered talk around or two-way trunked radio system that also allows us to go over broadband, like have a hardened phone that is mm. digitally enabled, that that has location and has a compute capability, both natively on the phone, at the edge, uh, mesh network, backhaul capabilities, internet protocol that, and we can, I see some teams starting to slice and dice. In other words, being able to transmit over various mm. systems, right? Because sometimes if you're in a big, heavy concrete or steel structure, the radio doesn't get out. But it yeah. might have boosted Wi-Fi in it. So how, how, yeah, so how do we use, a, say, a smart-hardened phone to get out over Wi-Fi and then blend that into What's LMR? the barrier for having big open talk groups? I am very much the irony. I mean, I run a podcast, but I know little to nothing about technology and voice voice communication methods. But like, if there were seven other people on this call, we could all speak freely with a good Wi-Fi and have have a conversation. You know, like you say, the whole push to talk, wait, can't interrupt, or I can interrupt for a priority message, like we do in the UK. It's clunky. Well, well it does it makes me think? Well. Uh, oh, you know what? Do you, have, do you have any folks who are down at the station now? I do. Like I have some friends I could text them and say, hey, come up yeah. come up on the call with Pete. 
and uh, be on the podcast mm. with us across the radio. Could any of them even get here? Mm. I doubt it. That that with the ra- the radio system couldn't even get to our podcast in any way, shape. I mean, yes, we know some people that could probably get there. For, and for me, I'm uh, I'm going to say I'm uh, it's the Imaginarian. I am not uh, uh, full disclosure mm. uh, technically competent radio. Uh, expert, but I'd I'd say the first place to look would probably the three GPP. Um, it's a, an attempt at a global standard, so we can all start m- moving down that road uh, for mission critical push to talk LTE. You know, mixed capabilities with radio. But frankly, Pete, I I just want mm. I want to move beyond voice. So take us beyond voice. Where uh, where is that taking I, you so rather, far? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you might have heard that there's an enterprise team that just launched a a new um, mm. headset thing. Some might call it augmented reality, mixed reality. They're using the term spatial computing, which is what I've been a proponent of for almost ten years. Uh, actually, it was uh, this year and a few months where I'm right at ten years where I first imagined I was at a 3D conference where they have vehicles that map. Um, you know, they're measuring million measurements a second to map the roadway in 3D, which is how autonomous mm-hmm. vehicles operate, right? They live map and they've got a machine that's um, doing object recognition. And, um, and so I imagine, gee, if there's these very small, uh, like fit in the palm of your hand scanners on the vehicles, if we could put one on a firefighter's helmet and it was real time sensing it, 100,000 measurements a second or more, a quarter-inch accuracy at 150 feet, couldn't that signal then uh, be converted in some way over the eye? And I, at the time, I didn't even know the term augmented reality. But I thought that there must be a way to then put it right right in front of our eye. And, yeah, and so to me, that's what's A quarter-inch accuracy at 150 feet. Now, I suppose, actually, when you say that, for a moving and, vehicle... That's actually entirely appropriate, but like the 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 way that autonomous driving works, they are so much further ahead than what we need anyway. We're like because we're not going to be moving at the pace they are. We obviously have the human being still interacting with it, therefore it, we don't rely on it being uh, accurate enough for as much kind of spatial awareness and for it to compute what that means visually to the movement of the vehicle. Like you say, we could regress that back several steps simply to have that um, that spatial recognition software. Because I have seen that I have seen the um, seen several videos of the product that you're referring to. So when did you first see? Uh, when did you first see that in use? When did you first see? Where did it come from? For people that won't know the history of it, where was the first place you saw it used? Oh, all right. Well, and 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 let me uh, and I'm I was uh, I was actually referring to. Uh, uh, so some small group named Apple who's come out with the Vision Pro headset and where, you know, if you, if you go anywhere on social media, there's quite a lot of um, chatter about what's happening with that. And so it will be people today are testing this before they go to the big box store. They've ingested their living room in 3D and they're testing to see if the couch is going to fit and how much spaces are they going to have on either side. And they're going to click through the various colors. 
the team I think you're referring to, uh, Quake Technologies, uh, was started by a, well, uh, a volcano explorer and a, uh, a mass, uh, a guy doing a master's thesis for industrial design who worked with the fire brigade and came up with this crazy idea. What if you had a smoke diving helmet is what he called it. And I spent a year and a half trying to oh, get a hold okay. of him. <laughs> and, and the volcano explorer was like, you know, when you go in a volcano, it's dark and smoking, there's ash in the way. And I'll just get the thing the firefighters have, but it turns out we didn't have one. And so, um, Omer, the, uh, the designer and uh, Sam, the uh, volcano explorer got together and said, look, let's, mm. let's build this. And finally, a year and a half later, I got an email back and I, I said, well, uh, and they, they said, well, do you want to see it? And it was still, it was version one, prototype one, very primitive, but the idea was to take a small, uh, infrared camera, you know, right. We carry around most agencies carry around thermal imaging cameras. Captain carries one, but they've got to pick it up and look around. And I don't know the last high-rise fire uh, drill. You, it was just drill. Last high-rise drill I went to, Pete. I weighed my gear was 140 pounds of gear. And guys, will say, guys and gals will say, well, I don't want more stuff to weigh me down. I said, yeah, but I don't want to crawl down the dark. And, and, and I've retired from active duty. But I, I'd rather have it in front of my eye than have to pick it up. In any event, so 2017, I had imagined it a few years previously, but had no idea how to get there. And they had already built the prototype. So I put it on in a darky, in a dark uh, 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 training tower, and lo and behold, I can, I can see the, the environment, the edges of uh, all the material around me, and now they're uh, I think on version fourteen wow. and coming to market. What was that like for you? Because something of we've uh, omitted to talk about so far is you've you've done like thirty years in uh, operationally hands-on work. Talk, talk to me a little bit about where your career started. Uh, well, I, I'm all my work's been in Northern California, and I started uh, now th- about 35 years ago. I spent 32 years with boots on the ground, and uh, mostly municipal, a little bit of wildland fire, not not so much, but uh, I'm, I spent 25 years in the Sacramento area, and uh, I think... I think I'm about 10,000 calls total, uh, most, mostly municipal firefighting, and but of which 85% are, are medical and, and there's vehicle collisions and a variety of other, you know, anything you can imagine we might have we might have gone on. If I didn't, some of the crews I, I know went on them. Um, what was basic training like for you to see this incredible evolution of search and rescue technologies and approaches? It, it's such a wonderful I always say as terrible as everything seems sometimes there really is the best time to be alive indeed and 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 of and in huge irony and, and shift I didn't care for technology <laughs> uh, okay. I, yeah, I I like to bicycle and sail and uh, you know human powered stuff and but now through the irony uh, irony that that I'm I'm interested in in the the team we're talking about has uh, produced a product called See Through, uh, and their team, the group name is uh, Quake Tech, and it it's a long way from thirty now thirty five years ago that I remember being in the academy and I was doing construction work, building houses at the time, and we were told uh, everything you thought you ever knew about ladders forget. 
And I thought, well, we've been working on two and three story houses on the, like 30 feet off the ground and stuff. And I quickly learned that I needed to forget everything I'd been taught because we were going to be using the 45, 50, 55 foot and eventually at the end of the academy, the 65 foot wooden ladder, all 375 pounds. And so we still are going to have to be good at our the labor side of our work. Operationally, we have to be good for when, uh, right, when our radio goes down, we have to be really good. Mm-hmm. When vision systems go down and spatial computing go down and the Internet of Things and uh, the machine learning and AI-enabled first response systems that are being built, when they go down, we have to, we have to be able to fall back to our basics. But it's certainly uh, it's an interesting position uh, to be uh, not just imagining, but realizing these things coming forward. So the team that we were talking about, it was really just a pair of uh, electric-enabled glasses that took the infrared signal, ran it through a compute package, and then projected it uh, onto my eye. Mm. Uh, then we went to in the face piece, right? Inside this SCBA face piece. And then we realized, well, that's going to tie us to one SCBA manufacturer. And we, well, on wildland farms, we don't use SCBAs. Mm. So then it became, oh, it needs to be helmet mounted. And that's where it's an interesting journey to watch that team and others move along the, the progression of iterations in the their TRL, Pete, mm. the technology readiness level. So when I first looked at it, it was a TRL of 1.5. It was it was beyond an idea. It actually they had a an early prototype, but it was not a minimum viable product. No. And so it's taken a number of years and compliments to the team. They've not just worked hard; they've worked incredibly intelligently have uh, support from our uh, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security wow. and a couple of key enterprise teams, and it's super exciting to, to see them. Uh... In other news, this episode is brought to you in partnership with MSA Safety. Today, we have them to thank for the improved firefighter safety through connectivity in their brand new connected firefighter system. At the center of the connected firefighter platform is the MSA M1 SCBA with telemetry. You can view battery life, air pressure, and estimated time remaining either independently on the M1 itself or from the lunar connected device screen. Also, still with the air status alarm information, search status, and all of this provided to the incident command for confident decision making during the scene. That integrates straight in with the lunar system, which is a wireless all-in-one device creating an independent search and rescue network, providing edge detection, enhanced personal thermal imaging, while simplifying post-scene reporting and data retention. One of the key parts of the lunar is their fast system, the firefighting assisting search technology. This combines directional and distance information with thermal imaging to help find separated teammates and decrease response time. It actually connects you to the other crews in the vicinity for a unified search during the time of mutual aid by instantly notifying the network of lunar devices when there is a downed crew member, allowing for a prompt search and rescue. All of this then plugs into the Firegrid system for cloud-based connectivity, real-time information, and data-driven decisions for the incident commander. It enables you to see the exact location of your firefighters on the scene. And it doesn't require you to be sat on the station. The MSA hub then provides a wireless gateway straight to the cloud, enabling wireless on-scene data for local and remote incident command for additional eyes on the scene. 
MSA are truly taking massive strides in the future of improved firefighter safety through connectivity. MSA is dedicated to increasing safety in the fire service through technological advancements. Various feature enhancements, new products, partnerships and integrations will provide additional capabilities readily accessible by products, software and services in the brand new MSA Connected Firefighter platform. Now back to the show. What has the appetite and receptiveness been like of some of the first responders and I, and this is only one of many things uh, in the sectors that you work in and the the things and the innovations you discuss but what's what's it been like feedback for it because i think you know we've spoken in the past about flame uh, as a company that we've had on and, and speaking about virtual reality training simulation um and how some people love it, some people hate it, some people, you know, it's very mixed reviews. Well, and I, I'm going to, you're still on the line, right, Pete? Mm-hmm. Still running your burning buildings, putting wet stuff on the red Yeah, stuff? 100%, brother. I'm still on the job. Well, I'm not, before I answer, I just I look really old. Back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only 33. I've got another 15, 20 years doing this here. Good on you. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I'll leave my chronological advancement of figures out of this for now, but uh, I've got you by a measure, let's say. <laughs> yeah, you win it on that uh, one. I'm trying to never yeah, catch I, up, I don't think. But anyway, go yeah, on. I did, I, yeah, I didn't get into the late 20s. So, the, so uh, you answer first. What do you see? And, and, and Flame are also friends of mine. Um, so, the Flame I, I love, and- I love it as a compliment to the training that we do practically. So big thing in the UK, we are very sensitive around decontamination now, around uh, the toxicity and the carcinogenic effect that the profession has on firefighters. Very sensitive about that now. Um, And so we should be. Um, But Sweden, America, Australia are a long way ahead of us with this. And the pendulum has recalibrated, I think, in some of those nations. And please correct me if you feel differently. And what I mean by that is they've recognized the risk. They've done the research. They've put decontamination procedures in place. Um, They encourage it and police it, fund it. But it doesn't limit their ability to to practically train. So in the UK, we've started doing less and less live fire burns. There's a lot fewer live fire burn units around the UK. Um, again, a myriad of reasons, uh, societally, people don't like having them near residential areas. And that's where a lot of our training development centers are across the UK. So that's a challenge. Um, so there's been a lot of synthetic smoke and a lot of gas rigs, which again, this was the great thing I was speaking about with, uh, with James from flame. It's like that in itself is a simulation already. Do you know what I mean? And it's not like the real thing because it doesn't behave the same way. Smoke doesn't behave the same way gas doesn't uh doesn't give off the same byproducts as a live fire does so we're already in the simulation world but then when we move to virtual reality i think it's a really incredible way to pause live training rewind talk about decision processes i'm a big fan for it not as a replacement but as a compliment very well said i'd say and uh, well there's there's a lot to to pull on there and when we were and James, one of the one of the brightest guys I know, certainly, uh, Dr. James Mullins, for those who might not uh, know him at Deakin University. And it was he was out here for a project that I did. Uh, you might see in the background there uh, for NASA JPL to help feed their AI program called Audrey. This might be worth 
were chatting about uh, during the during our call, but mm. um, he had recorded the fire we did in 360 video. Now, unlike traditional uh, burn boxes where we we bring in pallets or hay and we we burn cellulose material, we don't burn plastics because the heat release rate. Uh, is inconsistent with the survivability profile for firefighters in the training. And, and, mm-hmm. and there's the cancer exposure and so on. Uh, they, the NASA burn, we had a traditional fuel package in there uh, we, um, to train their AI program. And we were 1800F at the floor in less than two minutes, 50 kilowatts a meter squared. And he has- 1800 this, this, uh, Fahrenheit, the, did you say? Yeah. Wow. Okay. In less than two minutes. And so when we train with wood, we'll never get those. Sort no, that's of what I'm saying. Yeah, that sort all of, of the, the different products is- of, uh, of manufacturing now, uh, there's such an acceleration of, a, of a, an actual burn inside a compartment now is way, way. So we're already, like you say, in simulation now, burning pallets and straw and hay. And we, you know, we burn two by four and uh, block board over here. Um, it's yeah, not realistic. That's... that's- that is, and has anything to do but realism to fire. Yeah, yes, we could talk about flow path and ventilation profile and heat load, and but but really, it. Yeah, I mean, uh, of the few working structure fires I was in, they were they were not consistent with the burn box mm-hmm. uh, heat release rate of wood. Now, uh, but I said to. And so he's got the 360 video of this, and I'm saying that I had even heard of another crazier 3D technology, a solid state lighter that could measure millimeter accuracy at a thousand feet. And I and I and I said, does that seem right? And he said, well, is it even physically possible with the known speed of light? And I, I'm I'm getting off on a tangent here, but just trying to compliment him on his uh, his brilliance is. He, he breaks out his phone and he does a little something on his calculator. And I'm thinking, well, speed, you know, light's like 180,000 miles a second or something. And what do you mean the known speed? Is there an unknown speed? I don't know. <laughs> He'd he have said, lost well, that's me four long nanoseconds that, yeah. a foot. So, yeah, yeah, four nanoseconds a foot. So it is theoretically possible. It is physically possible. Wow. I said, okay, good to know. So if we need millimeter accuracy at 1,000 feet, I know, I know another team. Now, he, so he's third-generation firefighter. Uh, one of only two people I, I, I know who survived a, a flashover in real life um, and has the skill set to build this tool, this immersive learning tool, which is to supplement mm. our traditional tool set. And there are uh, other immersive learning environments that we can do. And all of our all training is in some way synthetic or staged or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's not only emergencies are emergencies. Uh, let's keep it that way. It's safer for everybody. Yeah. And so to your, your, your main point was, I think, what do I see? Or, and, and it's you and me. What, what do we and the other folks, whether they're startup or big enterprise teams bringing solutions, what do we see as far as adoption goes? Mm-hmm. Yes. What are our pressure points? What are, what What's we, the appetite what, what to integrate this well? globally? Because it's ap- something I think yeah. would be incredible. Well, and it's quite, um, it's a quite complex environment. Um, some would say we're, we're uh, an industry that's difficult to 
to get into uh, or small market. Uh, I was about to say it's the small market thing. Often the juice isn't worth the squeeze in the fire sector because it's not big enough. Do you know what I mean? To to get to oh. saturation point where it becomes profitable, especially like the UK is tiny. It's tiny. You know, that's why we don't, we're like the poor cousin of a lot of technological revolution in the UK. When you look at what that's happening in Formula One and aviation and things like that, we get the fourth and fifth version of it when it eventually becomes wide market affordable for us. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to, to Sam and James and, and their work in those domains and some others that are doing good work just for us. And what, what I'd like to encourage, because it, there are challenges, but I will say there's, there's a lot of interest, especially not to make it a generational thing, but the younger, the, mm-hmm. you know, the folks that grew up gaming who understand, mm-hmm. who, who code, right? Yeah. They, they write code and, they use AI to design code for them. So, like they're just all over it. They're like, what's taking, you know, the, the, the dinosaur leadership so long to get their act together. So, so with their encouragement. And then I'd also say on, on big corporate teams, like telecommunications teams, uh, look, there's, uh, several million first responders in America, but there's 320 million Americans that are not first responders. Let's build solutions for them for their phones, for their homes, to make them uh, digitally enabled, smart community risk reduction, like smart city designs, make them a, uh, enable them to escape harm because they have an application on their phone that has a 3D model of the theater, the school, mm-hmm. uh, whatever other public building they're in. Have you and seen they know the, their um, pathways. <clears throat> the product? Is it called 999i or something like that? Does that ring a bell? Basically, uh, we had um, a gentleman called Apollo Girolobos. He is a data analyst and technologist from London Fire Brigade in the UK. And London Fire Brigade is the biggest brigade in the UK, and they have the largest technology team there. And he was talking a lot about artificial intelligence. He was talking about language learning models, but he was talking about um, possible tactical applications and incidents. So... For example, to make this a lot easier to describe, a member of the public calls in an incident. They say, oh, I'm stood outside X building <clears throat> on this street. The emergency services can connect live to their phone, get a visual straight away on the incident, and then use an AI algorithm in combination with the language learning and getting all the information from the person to say, what the best response is, what the workload you know, capacity, what the predetermined attendance needs, what the correct tactical approach would be in that building. Immediately source a map you know, and, and residential information about that premises. And all of that can be done before the crew even gets there. Do you know what I mean? And he was, he was talking a lot about that. And I thought, wow. You know, because when, when I joined and certainly when you joined, you know, it was talking about the size up in the first five minutes. And, and we still talk about that now because we, we haven't really moved along much in about 40 years. Um, but when he said that, I thought, because all of that technology is around already. It's just marrying it all up to, uh, to, to manifest itself into a single off-the-shelf product. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, indeed. Absolutely. And I'd like to think of it as if it, if it was our turn to cook, 
and we're working at the big station. And I, I got to work at a rescue station. We had, if we had interns and a ride along, we, we'd have as many as 12 people on the station. And, you know, I'd go to the store and, uh, you know, maybe I get some shallots for pasta and some garlic and, uh, we get some fresh broccoli and, man, basil and, oh, you know, let's get some pine nuts and some fresh olive oil. We'll make a pesto and, Oh, and we're going to need some bread, and let's do an olive bread. I'll come out of olive bread, and I'll be sure to get extra butter for that and some Parmesan. And so we have the ingredients mm. now to build smart first response. It's just mm. it's putting it together. We're at the place the point, I think, we've got a hot pan and the butter sizzling, and it's mm. time to drop that shallots, and that's where we are. And so to your point, you actually made me think uh, – a little bit of what I had not thought of. Two two teams I want to mention. One is Good Good Sam, which is out of the UK. Okay. So a nod to I I think it was a a, a trauma doc or an emergency room doc who said the way we're doing this needs an update, and so he's enabled it uh, a system where caller calls in and dispatch sends them a link. No need for an app. Um, but it is called the Good Sam app. Yeah, I just pulled it up now. Wow. Okay. And he, interesting. Yeah, and it goes <laughs> it goes live video. Now this is for emergency medicine, and if it uh, say if someone's uh, ha- as a bystander for someone whose heart has stopped, uh, they can give instructions for CPR, and they can say what if the rate. And depth of compressions is sufficient, or it needs to be faster or slower, deeper, not so deep. If it's someone who's alert and oriented times four and is calling just to say, you know what, I've been sick for a few weeks, I think I've got bronchitis, I need a prescription, but my vehicle's out of order or whatever it is, I'm not able to make it to a doctor's office to get a prescription for some medicine. And the the machine through AI and computer vision knows the patient's pulse rate and can, with significant reliability, uh, detect their their stability. In which case, um, then the dispatcher can say, "Okay, is really all you need is a is a lift. You, you don't need an ambulance and a fire apparatus, which is typically how we run in the U.S. Send a fire engine and an ambulance." Uh, and uh, and then they could get a digital token for a private transport and keep the emergency apparatus available for true emergencies instead of uh, really just a, a priority visit to the hospital. Or, sorry, to the doctor's office, not to the hospital. And uh, I think it's San Antonio Fire Department in the U.S. has had some incredible success with this. Yes, that's um, who they've got as like, uh, evidence of their sort of case study, isn't it? So I'm just looking at it now, and we'll put this link uh, in the notes for people to kind of look if they want. Because, yeah, and, and this, I say, um, Apollo spoke to me about this, but I knew it would already be a thing. <laughs> so just for people, this says about... Um, Vote Fire and Rescue Services to provide most versatile video platforms for fire and rescue. One-way video runs concurrently with the emergency call. No need to hang up and restart the video conference, which is not practical and dangerous in emergency. So open any caller's phone camera in less than 10 seconds. It locates the caller instantly. The video can be forwarded to the officer in charge. 
close to the scene, instantly identifying the suspect, enabling staff to see what they're about to enter. Don't need to seize the phone. The evidence is stored, date and time stamped in real time. Uh, yeah, no need for officers to attend low acuity calls. We often get smoke scene. So we'll get tipped out in the area and we're just fucking driving around for an hour. You know, can't find anything. And this good Sam app, I'm going to contact them. It'd be great to have them on the podcast as well. So yes, there you go. <laughs> Another example of something that's already... Why, why the hell don't I already know about this? Not that I'm important by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> well, but I that. speak to people across the UK every week, you know, and it astonishes me. And I also attend many fire and rescue services in the UK to, to train and assess. This has never come across my radar, good Sam. Well, brilliant. And and, and as much as I, I, I'm amazed, the same, the same for me, I keep coming up on uh, experts who, you know, know 25 or 30 people that I work with and, and yet I've never met them and they're doing something I'm not familiar with. And this is the amazing thing is that it's, it's not just that we have the ingredients to make a really amazing meal. It's that we've got the whole grocery store at our <laughs> fingertips with technology. And you brought up the, and for, if we can put them in the notes, I would like to send you maybe a dozen or more links of, uh, for yeah, your, your listeners to, to go and check out. But just, just today I see, uh, I got an email blast from the International Association of Fire Chiefs indicating that Orange County Fire is launching a video to 911 technology. So I, I need to look into, okay, what, what system are they using? So we, we need these sort of things as a, as a minimum. Everybody needs to wear, be aware of them and the, um, and the opportunities, uh, are just amazing. There's it's a couple points. One was getting back to the, the NASA program, Audrey which was funded by the Department of Homeland Security and led by the team at Jet, the Jet Propulsion Lab. And they said, we need some more thermal data to train our AI. So over a couple of days, we did these five fires for them and it fed their AI. And so they, you know, you and I and, you know, veteran firefighters can watch a video and maybe in a matter of a few seconds, based on the pressure of the black smoke, Mm. And, you know, the thermal column and we're like, oh, that thing's mm. going to flash. Or, you know, we see a video of somebody goes and they make the door, they open the door. Oh, mm, that, that thing's hot. All it's going to mm. need is that oxygen. It's going to flash. And well, the AI program is there mm. now where they, and what if they could predict it? If we could predict it, say three or four seconds before it flashes, what if they could predict it 60 seconds before? Or two minutes oh yeah, before. it'd be so quick because, like you so say, the, run the uh, algorithm. We'll put some the, links the size, in the chat. complexity of the building, the rate and color of pulsating smoke, um, where in the where in the layer, uh, where's the heat layer? You know, what's the color of the windows? Is there any? You know, it would run that. I mean, that just, I I just feel like so stupid when I talk about this sort of stuff because the rate at which it would run that algorithm, it would be so accurate down to probably a second two or three seconds as to when that would be likely to flash and it would also tell you the best the best area of access where to vent it from yeah yeah what to do especially in a a wind-driven fire what are we going to do and if if there's an option for people to share their location right if we're having calls for rescue in the structure we have a known rescue someone's trapped in the back bedroom but we don't know the layout of the building and we don't know the condition of the patient and so so Sadly, uh, 
people are texting their loved ones to mm. say goodbye. So in that moment, if we could have uh, that, well, we can, it's just, yeah. it needs to be done to integrate that people can communicate directly to the truck crew with the circular saw who's on the other side of the wall, who, who really is highly motivated, educated, and trained mm. and capable of cutting a hole in the wall if they just mm. need to know where. And so these are the opportunities um, that uh, are so inspiring. And so I'll give you the links to, to uh, NASA JPL's program, Audrey. And, uh, it, well, and it makes me think one of the teams is doing three, Life's 360 video where each pixel is geo-referenced and has machine vision capability to for object recognition. Well, yeah, we start getting, um, you know, cloud compute uh, capabilities that, you know, what you were just telling me, I'm like, oh, wow, I know what's happening for EMS now. Oh, there's so much more we can do. Today's podcast is powered by our partner Lifelines and their revolutionary approach to functional hydration. Just like in firefighting, water is essential for body function, but studies show more than 80% of firefighters are dehydrated. A 25-year study findings from the National Institute of Health showed poor hydration to be linked to early aging and chronic disease and even mild dehydration results in significant negative impact outcomes including headaches, exhaustion, rapid pulse, irritability and poor cognitive function. A study conducted by Yale University showed that participants who were just 1% dehydrated had a 12% increase in errors when performing tasks that required cognitive flexibility. In addition, dehydration is shown to worsen mood and attitude, contribute to confusion and poor decision making, and negatively affect memory and judgment. In other words, you really don't want your incident commander, firefighter, or for that matter, any first responder on a critical scene to be even slightly dehydrated. Mild dehydration occurs when a person is just 1.5% dehydrated, a condition that does not even trigger the third response in most people so just imagine how quickly a firefighter or any first responder can and does become dehydrated in their day-to-day duties which is why i address my hydration first thing every day with lifelines go into the notes for this episode and specifically check out lifelines hydro fuel and hydro og by clicking in the notes for the podcast for a clean energy solution designed for those who demand more from their day now back to the show one team i know is looking on or has done some great work on the computer vision being able to identify a firearm through video. So what if a firearm shows up um, at a place that it it shouldn't be? That sort of stuff for marauding terrorist, you know, firearms incidents, being able to detect that in a crowd would be a a hugely, and I imagine this is already being used, um, given how much CCTV uh, activity is across the world absolutely um, but it's almost an elitist system because again I'll, I'll, I'll repeat myself but the first responders i think the public would assume we have access to the best technology and the best resources i almost it almost i almost feel a bit of a fraud sometimes when i think about the uh, very rudimentary uh, tools that we have available to us at times uh, yes and i i I, I definitely, but well, we did have the best tools in the beginning. The fact that we had a two way radio when I started and all phones were hardwired, yeah, there yeah, were yeah. no cell phones, right? Uh, and I mean, pho- homes did have cordless phones fairly early in my career, but they only had a reach of maybe 100 feet or mm-hmm. something like that. So we had the best 
but tech is moving so quickly now. Uh, and so, and, and I think they say, well, if a new fire truck is a million dollars. Oh my gosh. You know, uh, and I, I did, I've, I started to look at the numbers cause I felt badly about that. And then I thought, well, divided by how many citizens are in the community that, that worked out to, uh, I think it was $20 a citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I'm sorry. It was $4 a citizen over 20 years. So it, it and I, I did the math on, well, how much did we spend each year? I, the, the budget for the fire department was $253 per person per year. And to have uh, 40 people mm-hmm. at your disposal 24-7 for $250, mm, yeah. that's a pretty good insurance <laughs> policy uh, in my mind. Um, and back to the, the computer vision, anytime somebody takes a, a smartphone and, and um, puts a, you know, for a selfie mode, puts a little green line around it, there's computer vision object recognition. The phone knows it's looking mm-hmm. at a face. And that's the part of uh, autonomous vehicles are doing object mm-hmm. recognition. And what is the probability? We'll put some links in the mm-hmm. chat on this too. But what, what is the probability that we're correct in what, in what the, that the machine is correct and what it believes that is? And we get into an interesting dialogue, Pete, all the time about, well, should there be a human in the loop? Yes. So yeah, this is an irony on, uh, when university um, research people, we, we're project. talking so much about driverless cars, yet we're very passionate about continuing to send people into space. I'd always thought we'd reverse that as quickly as possible because space is very is very difficult for humans to survive in. We're really not designed for it. And as exciting as it is, and I'm, I'm still a very young man, but I probably think it's very unlikely I will go to space. I'm not smart enough to be an astronaut, I don't think. But... um. I don't know why we would ever send another human into space. You know, we're spending so much time focusing on driverless cars. Why Why is anyone in an aircraft outside of our atmosphere ever again? Surely that doesn't make any sense. I might be stupid there. Please tell me you, you disagree. <laughs> oh, uh, as an old, uh, a former uh, tall ship sailor, I'll just say, well, I don't know if they might have said that, you know, in earlier generations and, and, uh, uh, in exploration yeah. of the globe, well, why sail off in a in a, yeah. in a boat uh, to go look for? I don't know. I that that's outside my You're domain. Right. Yeah, but yeah. Actually, that is very small minded of me because I, the the uh, idea of being I, I, an interplanetary species no, is I, very exciting. I suppose it just still feels so very far away from oh, me. Oh, and and yeah, it does. I I think we'll have computer vision for first responders. You know, right on their helmet before uh, we have interplanetary God, species. So. <laughs> uh, but that's just a guess. I'm imagining. <laughs> so take us back to oh. the, the different types. So people won't know at all what edge detection is. I know we, we kind of touched it earlier. Just explain for us and go into a little bit more detail if you if you feel you can on how the the systems work for spatial recognition. Mm. I don't know if I'm going to get into how they work, but we're we're all feel we're all familiar with uh, thermal imaging cameras, yep. and uh, that we have a distinction between, and that the, the the camera can actually give us okay, where are the hot spots, and maybe it can be radiometric, and it has various colors for various temperatures. The in the beginning they were just grayscale, mm-hmm. and the darker was cooler, and white you know lighter was 
was hotter, but it's kind of hard to make out objects. So edge detection is a, a set of AI algorithms that are beyond my skill set, but that distinguish what is the edge of a desk or a chair or the outline of a mm-hmm. body. Uh, so that uh, we're, there's less uh, cognitive load on trying to figure out what we're looking at. It's just outlines. It's a, a like a wireframe drawing. So uh, much uh, much more intuitive. Mm-hmm. And the 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 tests early tests, and this is several years that the see-through team were, were doing tests before they were so close to market was compared to your traditional, how much faster might you be on a search and rescue? So there's a known victim. Engine one arrives and goes on a search and rescue at the traditional system. And then they, they use the see-through system and they were significantly faster. And, and maybe more importantly, it was at their confidence level um, because Randy anyone who's crawled down the hallway in the dark with heat overhead, um, especially, well, and I, and both as a firefighter and as a company officer in the leadership role, uh, there's a significant amount of stress and cognitive uh, load. And, um, and it'd be great to have some of that mm-hmm. left over to do more listening. Like, what am I, what am I, what should I be listening to that I can't be hearing, you know, for the call of a, of a victim who's uh, choking on smoke, but can barely, barely call out. Uh, so the intuitive visuals, I think, are going to be helpful. I wanted to um, ask you about, because before we came on today, we were speaking a little bit around drones and how I'd seen some innovations uh, around approaches to high-rise firefighting where they were utilizing drones both for the visual but also for the deployment of firefighting media and one of the things we discussed before we came on was a recent um a recent seminar or symposium that you'd been to where you'd had some insights uh, and perhaps give us some of those insights into how we take to the air you know i, I often think that when we break the drone market and when we break the legislative aspects that uh, are stopping it from truly becoming used everywhere, we'll know about it because someone like Amazon will do it. And there will be drones flying absolutely everywhere in the street, delivering all of our packages within less than an hour from ordering products. How do you see that complement in the work of the first responder? Uh, yes, it's very much an exciting time. I, I do a little a bit of work as an adjunct professor with the University of Cincinnati, and they Suggested I go out to a, a meetup last week that was a vertical flight society symposium. And, uh, oh, the game developers conference, you know, blew my mind. Now, this was not as enormous, but also just amazing what is just around yeah. the corner. Uh, well, actually, it's here now Adv- advanced air mobility. So I'm looking forward to giving you some links on, on the subject. Uh, so while I'm there, I see there's a, a Go Aero uh, prize, a $2 million prize to design and build a safe, portable, robust, autonomy-enabled emergency response flyer. Whoa. Well, why not? Right? And and the partners include Boeing and NASA and uh, Iridium and a few other 
folks who are that is Iron Man. Yeah, <laughs> that literally is. That What's literally that? would be the Iron Man first responder. Somebody in somebody in a suit, or even you know, if it was autonomous, that would be scary. I think people would be worried about technology taking our job, though. If we got to that bit, although I see a great application for it with wildland <laughs> firefighting, especially where our our inability to be yeah. able to deploy to an area. Uh, very difficult to access by vehicle. Well, I'm going to say, as far as taking our jobs, uh, <clears throat> rather than <clears throat> AI and autonomous systems taking our jobs, I think it's those first responders that use advanced technology systems will do a lot more in their okay. domains, just like uh, large language modeling. Uh, will it take some writers' jobs? Well, the writers who aren't using it, mm, you know, but the writers who are using it for, um, you know, like, do we use spell check when we send yeah. a text message? Um, my spelling's not as good as the machine. So I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah, I've been using AI for text messaging, you know, unintentionally mm. for a long, long time. Um, so I, I put the, a couple of those chats in there because the, the other one uh, beside, is, uh, is jump arrow. Which uh, my understanding is there, the prototype is like 250 knots, and just enough for one first responder. That's like a 350 pound payload. Now I, I did not see this in person, but I did see some other um, uh, craft that are already uh, on the road. Uh, you've got folks like uh, Archer and United partnering to do uh, airport shuttles, like uh, four or six people and. Electric vertical takeoff and landing systems. Uh, <laughs> there's uh, NASA's done some work on uh, NASA uh, AM advanced air mobility and data. Um, I think DRF data reasoning fabric. Yeah, I'm gonna. Here's a good. Here's a good one for you. Uh, and we'll you'll pass this along to to folks, but. Along the smart city systems, how does how does everything connect when we have uh, large autonomous? So we have self driving cars. What are we going to? What about when we have self flying mm. cars? It's it's really quite close. And as far as the wildland, absolutely. Um, uh, there's uh, there's a lot of interest in early detection from space, and uh, X Prize is running a big uh, challenge right now that includes that, and then okay, once we identify it, how do we get some retardant or some uh, suppressant on those fires that yeah. we should fight? In other words, in the wildland, especially in the Western U.S. and Australia, some parts of Europe, uh, because of suppression efforts for the past fifty, a hundred, hundred and fifty years. The forests have become so dense that when there is a fire, then the trees die. Um, yet we need to burn out mm. the understory to thin the fires so that they're not a dis disastrous fires. They're not so destructive. So there is a need for healthy fires in, you know, places where, uh, we didn't suppress them in the past. So, so if you have an autonomous system that could suppress a fire, is it a fire that should be suppressed or is it the time of year? Is it still in the spring and it's going to do a little, it's going to be a beneficial mm -hmm. fire. Uh, so, or when there's a, an, uh, 
a control burn, uh, you know, put together by, say, the, the, the Forest Service Bureau of Land Management and others who are in the market uh, or, you know, are in the business of managing the healthy health of the forest and, and protecting the neighboring communities, uh, when it's time for a control burn, how's the AI going to help us determine when the best time for ignition is? How many resources should we have? And do we have an autonomous system as backup in case there's a spot? You know, a lot of times, you know, the firebrands will go some yeah. distance. And if we, and if we have an autonomous system, yeah, to your point, a drone with some uh, suppression that this should be beneficial. We'd like to. Mate, I that. think it's a really, really exciting time. I think it's uh, it's a fascinating area to get into. Uh, the irony is, I, I mean, I was really excited to come on and have a chat with you this evening. I think I've been left with more questions <laughs> that I came with, not because you failed to answer any, <laughs> but it's kind of like we all sit within our own. Uh, unconscious bias spheres where the things you're just not aware of you're just not aware of um so i really look forward to uh digesting some of those links uh, i've got a small list of people that i've made uh companies and whatnot that i'm probably getting in contact with i'd probably love to speak to you again in maybe six or eight months time if you'd be up for it and give us you know a, a short roundup of what what new evolutions we've seen because i feel like again someone in your position who has the authenticity you're a little bit of a hybrid person because you've done the thing you have the authenticity of knowing what you're talking about and now you clearly have a passion for this uh it's very kind peter i'd love to get back uh and and chat some more i'd ask uh ho hopefully you or some of your colleagues might come across a pond to the upcoming uh fdic show there'll be probably thirty-five thousand folks together in april in indianapolis indianapolis and, uh, i'm having russ on will be in there. the next couple of days so russ timpson who's doing the high-rise conference in indianapolis uh, he runs that and then it rolls straight into FDIC. I am literally in the process of trying to source support and funding from the service that I work from to get me out there because FDIC has been on my list for three years now and I'm still yet to attend. Well, well, brilliant. Uh, there'd be some folks I'd want to connect you to personally. So I'm, I'm, I'm supporting the the well, some people might call it the nerd stuff, but I'm supporting the digital innovation posture. Uh, and there'll be uh, an extended reality studio oh, there, a command and control section, the Lucas Oil Stadium in particular, where the 9 11 stair climb is on the Friday morning. Uh, it's a, a great pleasure to have been there uh, a number of times and now to be specifically looking at hey, could we get one of the flying car teams out there? Uh, there is a, an autonomous vehicle. Um, the the Google Waymo team, oh, wow. I believe, is. Uh, I see them on the list. They're going to be in Lucas Oil and some other uh, very innovative and progressive teams. So I'd like to get together with you firsthand in uh, in Indian April, and then uh, and then we'll have a lot more questions, both of us, because <laughs> uh, yeah, it's time for me. I don't have answers. I have more questions and more imaginings. Of that's beautiful, though, isn't it? To be that eternal student, to be the curious child. Oh. I hope I die with questions, you know, because how sad well, to have well, lost let's. the desire to learn. Because you have the gift of being the eternal student only if you choose to be. Because uh, it's a fascinating world out there. Thank you so much for your time, brother. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, please send my love to the family, and uh, I look forward to sharing some of those links with uh, with everyone that's listening. Right back at you, Pete. Thanks so much. Hope to see you in April. 
The Firefighters Podcast was created to recognize, acknowledge, inspire, and hopefully even motivate these incredible individuals who have chosen to be part of the first responder community. Our driving purpose is to create a legacy resource for the current and future generations of firefighters and first responders. We get some incredible feedback from listeners and guests. And as the podcast grows, our desire to create longevity and sustainability means that we are asking for the support of our listeners. If you want to support the podcast, if you want to get discounts to our merchandise, hoodies, clothing, coins, patches, tallies, and also access to all of the incredible documents get shared with us from our podcast guests and sector leaders, then please head over to our Patreon page and for just £3 a month, you can support the future of the podcast. Please finally hit that follow, subscribe, or rate button on the platform you're listening. And wherever you are in the world, please support your emergency services responders. And thank you for listening.